0: Good afternoon. It's once again a privilege to be here um, with the Word of God, uh, especially the summer season. uh, People are traveling, but uh, we hope that uh, wherever they go, they also have the opportunity to be in the presence of God's Word as we are here today. Uh, We're beginning a new series on Joshua. We have uh, kind of taken a break from the Gospel of John, which we'll pick up. Later on, uh, we thought it would be good to look at the book of Joshua, which we haven't done before in this assembly, so we're going to start off today with chapter one, and we know like the book of Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible in the canonical order. It follows the first five books, which is known as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law, so that's a big... uh, turning point in the history of God's people of Israel because the Pentateuch, the end of the Pentateuch is also the end of the life of Moses. Moses dies uh, or his death is recorded at the end of Deuteronomy and the death of Moses is the end of an, uh, of an era in Israel's history, perhaps the most significant era in the history of Israel because that was the time The time of Moses was when God revealed himself fully of his character to to Israel through Moses. He gave them the law. He gave them the rules for how to live and how to set up their government and how kings are to behave, how to identify prophets, how to do the priestly ministries. So it's a significant change that's about to happen in the history of Israel. So when you look at the first verse of uh, Joshua, it says, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. So the beginning of the book of Joshua ties itself to the end of Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, we read that Moses died, he was buried by God himself, and then the people of Israel mourned him for 30 days and 30 nights. So there's a continuity between the two eras which is marked by the death and the funeral of Moses. So it's talking about a change in the leadership of the people of God. When it says the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it's leaving unsaid the fact that we should know by, by reading through the scriptures that Moses was the leader of Israel. So it's talking about a change in the leadership in the, of the people of God. I and mean, when you talk about leadership changes, you know, m- many times people yearn for a change in leadership, right? One sphere where we see this always is politics, right? You, you get a new leader, then after two, three years, yeah, the majority of people feel they're ineffective, that things are not going okay, that change would be good. So you yearn for a change in leadership. But at other times, the leader is so intrinsically tied to the identity and the character of the organization or the people that he leads, that such a change is not desired and only happens circumstantially, either through death or some other catastrophe. So people do not want the leader to uh, to leave. And we rarely see this today in maybe like politics, but you see this often in companies where the leader and the culture or the success of the company are so intertwined that the leader is the face of the company, that people cannot um, think about that company without that leader associated with it. So if you look at today's technology companies, for example, Amazon is identified with like Jeff Bezos. So no one, no one thinks of uh, a future for Amazon or people haven't put thought to it. What will happen at, let's say, Jeff Bezos dies in a plane crash? I think people don't want to think about that because it's so identified with the company. When Steve Jobs died, he died as the CEO of Apple, even though he had taken like a sick leave. People were very vocal about the fact that they did not think that the company would remain the same, and even today, many people believe that the company is no longer the same as when Steve Jobs was leading it. Because the identity of that organization is so intertwined with the leader and the qualities that leader has. And Israel's situation at the beginning of Joshua is similar. Moses has died. The only leader the nation of Israel had known was Moses. He was the one whom the Lord had called out of all the people of Israel. He was the one, as we remember today in the morning, he was the one to whom the Lord spoke face to face to no one else. He was the one who led them out of the captivity in Egypt. He was the one who overcame Pharaoh and the armies of Pharaoh and many other enemies in the land of Canaan. He was the lawgiver, the one to whom the law was revealed and who mediated it to Israel. He performed the miracles that enabled them to survive for 40 years in the wilderness and in the desert. You know, the water from the rock, manna from heaven, all of that came through the work of Moses. And perhaps more importantly, he was the reason that the nation of Israel were still in covenant with God. If you read uh, the books of Exodus and Numbers, you will see many times, but especially uh, after they created the golden calf, and also when in Numbers chapter 13 and 14, when the spies come back from the land of Canaan, and, and they say, well, The land is good, Uh, the fruits are plentiful, but the people are very strong and they're very very fearful. Uh, And so the people of Israel say, we do not want to go to the promised land. At that time, God tells Moses that I will destroy the nation of Israel, but I will make you a great nation. So I will end the line of Abraham and Isaac and Moses, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Instead, I will make a nation out of uh, Moses' family. And then Moses is the one who intercedes and says, God, but if that is the case, what will become of your reputation and your name and so on? So he is the reason the people of Israel remain in the covenant of God. That's why in Deuteronomy chapter 34, the verse 10, it says, and there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. There was no one before Moses or even after Moses who was, who was so prevalent, identified with the nation of Israel like Moses was, and it is this Moses who has now died. So when you go back to Joshua chapter one, the first two verses, it says that after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. See here, first off we see Moses is whom, The servant of the Lord. Who is Joshua? He is Moses' assistant. It's saying that jo- Joshua it, it had not risen to the stature of Moses, whom the Lord himself says, Moses, my servant, is dead. So there's the challenge of the change in leadership from someone who's very iconic to someone who's more ordinary. Then there's the situation. For all of his good qualities, Moses had died without leading them into the promised land. Now they had come to the banks of the River Jordan and the river Jordan lay between them and the promised land. And, and, and between them and the promised land not only lay this river, but also many enemies that they had to overcome. So Joshua had not only to follow in the footsteps of Moses, but he also had to get the people to follow him over the Jordan into the promised land and the conflicts that were to come. You know, in, during the Second World War, Franklin Roosevelt was the President of the United States. In 1944, there was a, a presidential election and Franklin Roosevelt went uh, to, uh, to Harry Truman and he persuaded him to be his vice presidential uh, candidate along with, uh, with Roosevelt who was seeking re-election. Now Truman wanted to go to the Senate. It's a much more kind of cushier job. But the, but the existing Vice President was very unpopular with, with the Democratic Party, so they, they approached Truman and he accepted the job with, with a lot of reluctance. And then on April 12, 1945, which is the last year of World War II, but before the war had actually ended, he was, uh, Truman was summoned to the White House. There he was shown into Eleanor Roosevelt's sitting room, the wife of uh, Franklin Roosevelt, where Eleanor told him that President Roosevelt was dead. And after a moment of stunned silence, uh, Harry Truman asked her, is there anything I can do for you? And then she shook her head, and she asked him, is there anything we can do for you? Because you are the one in trouble now. Because he did not sign up for it. And yet, here he was, in the midst of a world war, as the president of the most powerful country in the world. So the children of Israel... When they look behind, there's the funeral of Moses, their iconic leader. In front of them, there's a river that they have to cross and they're stuck in the middle. So in chapter one, we see this um, challenging situation for Joshua as he steps into leadership. But what we also see as we read chapter one is a template for godly leadership, for Christian leadership and especially the context and the conviction behind it. Regardless of circumstances, regardless of how challenging it is, there is a template that is explained and exhibited in Joshua chapter one. No matter what the challenge is, what Joshua chapter one says is that the underlying success or failure of the people of God and their leadership is dependent on God's provision and God's leadership. The Christian leader plays an important role He's God's appointed shepherd, but he is not powerful within himself. He is not dependable within himself to find success in leading the people of God. But in focusing on God's priorities and trusting in God, he will be able to fulfill the mandate that God has set before him. So this chapter has a lot of valuable lessons for leaders for and, and, and even for all of us as Christians in general? Where does our confidence come from? What are the means by which we'll be successful in our walk? What is the environment that needs to be fostered for us to find that success? And when you read through chapter one, you find three things that determine the success of Christian leadership. It is the character of God, then the word of God, and finally the people of God. The character of God, the word of God, and the people of God. When you look back to chapter 1, let's read from verse 3 onwards, after God has said, uh, go over this Jordan. He says in verse 3, Every place that the sol- sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, to the great sea, Toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. You notice here that the Lord does not give them much time. They took 30 days to mourn, but he did not give them any more time to kind of regroup and reassess their situation for some like strategy meetings. He says, get up and go over the Jordan. If you looked at it from a human perspective, maybe Joshua needed some more time. He needed maybe more training. Maybe the people needed to get used to his leadership style. But what we see is that the Lord is the one who is ultimately in charge. He's the one who drives the mission and its direction. And he's the one who leads his people in a sovereign ultimate sense. And here we can see why we can be confident in the Lord's sovereign leadership over his people. First off, here we see that the Lord speaks to Joshua. He certifies him as leader and he signals to the people that follow him that I will be with Joshua. So there's the confidence that flows to the people from the fact that God himself is the one who has raised up a successor to Moses. Secondly, in verse 1, it says that when you read it, it says the Lord spoke to Joshua. Now, in our English translations, it's always translated Lord, but in the, in the original language, the, the Lord here stands for Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. It is the name which is praised throughout the Bible, especially in the Psalms, if you read it. It signifies the character of God, the Yahweh God's the the term Yahweh signifies the character of God. It signifies the holiness of God. It is the name which he revealed to Moses at the burning bush as saying, the meaning is, I am who I am. He says, I am the one who appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I am the one who is eternally existent. I am the one who is enduringly faithful to my people. The name Yahweh signifies that God does not change, that he's always faithful to his people. He's a personal God whose promises never fail, and that he always rescues and saves his people. So the Yahweh God speaks to Joshua, and when you look at the name Joshua, what does Joshua mean? That itself is a reflection of the character and promise of God. If you read Numbers chapter 13 again, you will find that Joshua's original name was not Joshua. His original name was Hosea or Hosea, which means deliverance. His original name meant deliverance. Then Moses changed his name from Hosea to Joshua, which means Yahweh delivers. So Moses changed his name from deliverance which kind of pointed that he was a symbol of deliverance, to the name Joshua, which said that Yahweh will be your deliverer. To tell Joshua and the people, you put your trust in God. Because when the time comes, he's the one who will deliver. Joshua is the first person in the Bible to be given a name that incorporates the personal name of God. But we know another person whose name incorporates the personal name of God. and That's Jesus. Jesus' name is Joshua. And he is the Joshua who truly saves his people once and for all and who enables us to enter into a personal relationship with the personal God through his saving work on the cross. So when Yahweh says to Joshua, trust me, my character, my unchanging faithfulness, I have brought you to the bank of the Jordan, he's saying I will take you over it. So in verse 3 he says that every place your feet treads I will give to you just as I promised to Moses. That promise still holds because I promised it. Verse five, he says, just as I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. He says, you you can be confident in my unchanging character. Then verse six, he says, be strong and courageous. Take encouragement because I am the one who stands with you and behind you and goes in front of you. Therefore, he says, be strong and courageous. Commentators has to say this, that he says, Yahweh's faithfulness does not depend on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. So Joshua does not have to do it in his own strength. He does not have to rely on his own gifts. He does not have to be worried about his inexperience because God has promised him personally, that my presence will be with you. And that promise holds today for all of us. You know, Jesus, the last word that he said when he was on this earth in Matthew chapter 28, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. He says, God's presence will be there with every generation of God's people so we can be confident That's why in Hebrews chapter 13, verse five to six, it says, uh, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have for he has said, or God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The presence of God, which is promised eternally to the people of God, is the ultimate confidence for our success in the walk that God has given us. Interestingly enough, Hebrews has a lot of common things with Joshua, because it is also written to a congregation that was in flux, whose leaders uh, were new. The old leadership had died or they were in jail, and there was a lot of pressure and conflict from the outside. And so this verse is telling the listeners of Hebrews to take encouragement in the character of God, just as it, spoke to Joshua and Israel. But also, if you read Hebrews chapter 13, immediately after, verse 7 and 8, it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. And in verse 8, out of nowhere, if you read that passage, it kind of sticks out. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So what does that mean? It means that See, the old guard, the old leadership had passed. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. They had, they had gone. Their example was to be followed, but they were no longer there to lead. So where would the confidence for this people be in? Then verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. Leaders will pass away. But he will not. His promises do not change. His faithfulness does not change. He is the same. Leaders change, but God does not. So the confidence that this people, the people to whom Hebrews was written, and the confidence that Joshua was to have, that the people of Israel were to have, was because of the unchanging character and faithfulness of God. And the encouragement they could draw from it to remain strong and courageous. So the confidence for a new leader comes from the character of God but how how was he to go about the work and the tasks that were assigned to him how was Joshua to complete his mission to bring the people of God into the promised land that's what we read about in verse 7 to 9 of chapter 1 it says only be strong and very courageous being careful to do according to all the law Moses my servant commanded you do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left It's not about tactics because the key to his success was not rooted in his leadership skills or in his tactical ability. Rather, the key to his success was spiritual. It was related to his obedience to God. It was rooted in God's word rather than depending on his might or the might of his armies by being faithful and obedient to the word of God, Joshua would find success. That was to be his first priority above all else. God says he has to be careful to do according to all the law. The word of God was to be the comprehensive resource from which he was to take guidance. And not only was it to be the source of guidance, but it was to be obeyed completely, not to turn from following it even slightly to the left or to the right. Its guidance was not advice, but command. And that obedience, how was it to come? How was it to come about? Was it to be blind, blind obedience, that whatever I read in the word of God, I will obey? Or was it to be assumed, that because you know I'm a Christian, I read something in the word of God, done. I'll obey it. Now, simplistically, we would say yes. But here, we see that that obedience is to be based on a comprehensive knowledge of what was in the word. It says, Joshua was to meditate on it day and night. He was to immerse himself in studying and reflecting on it. Then it says it was not to depart from his mouth. It conveys, you know, that expression, not to depart from his mouth, conveys the idea that this was an activity to be done aloud, that Joshua was to recite them to himself, not merely store it in his heart, but to bring it out to the surface so that he could hold himself accountable by telling himself the word of god and secondly it conveys the idea that it was not just a private exercise when you speak out loud other people will hear it it was to be heard by the people he led they were to know that their leader focused and knew focused on and knew the word of god So in this meditation and in this exposition, therefore, it says in verse 8, you will be careful to do accordingly. That is, obedience comes from constantly increasing in the knowledge of the word of God. Not just blindly following it, but by constantly increasing in the knowledge of the word of God, therefore, you will become more and more obedient. And so by focusing and obeying the word of God, Joshua, it says, would be able to make his way prosperous and find success in his mission. Now, this is one of those verses that you know many Christians have taken as a blanket statement that God will just give them prosperity and success if they obey whatever God says. That is not really what the intention here is. You can ask Job or so many characters in the Bible who are obedient and who did not find maybe prosperity or success the way we would define it. But the word prosperity and the word success are actually the same word. It says success in the way that you are to go. It means that God had commissioned Joshua for a task. And in that task, in following the will of God, he would find success and prosperity, which also means success. He would prosper in the way that God had set out for him, provided he knew and obeyed the word of God. And in knowing and obeying the word of God, verse 9, he would find the encouragement. He says, it's a repetition in verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous? The encouragement that we receive from the presence of God being with us is emphasized, made real to us, when we encounter him in his word and we obey his word wholeheartedly. That's why it's reiterated. My presence will give you encouragement. My word will give you encouragement. That's why throughout the history of godly leadership, there's such a focus on the word of God. If you look at the qualifications for elders in the New Testament, in 1 Timothy it says they have to be trained in the words of faith and doctrine. They They have to take it up as a formal activity to be trained. And then it says, where in, again in First Timothy, it says, elders are to lead in the public reading and exhortation and teaching of the Word of God." In Titus, it says, "They are to hold firm to the word and give sound instruction to those they lead and rebuke those who disobey it." So throughout the ages, the mark or success, the mark of success or failure in godly leadership is always symbolized by whether the leader is focused on knowing and obeying the word of God completely. And that was Joshua's mandate as well. So there's the character of God and then there's the word of God. And finally, the environment in which he would flourish is in the midst of the people of God. Let's read verse 10 to 18 quickly. It says, Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, prepare your provisions For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. And he goes on um, in verse 15. It says, he talks about, you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond, beyond the Jordan toward the sunray. So, what happened? What happened here? So, what what happens in Numbers is that as they were about to cross over into the the land, the Promised Land, which is on the west of Jordan two tribes, two and a half tribes, Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, said the land on the east side of the river, where they already were, is actually very fertile, it's very pleasant, it's very fruitful. We want to get this land as our inheritance to set up our families to raise our children here. Not the land on the other side of the river, which is the promised land. And now Moses initially saw this as a threat to once again disobey God's commandment and disrupt the unity of the nation. But in, 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 in uh, talking with God, they come to this agreement that it's okay for them to, for these two and a half tribes to stay on the east side of the Jordan, provided they continue to fulfill their responsibilities to their brothers and sisters which is that they would help them militarily, they would help them financially, and they would help them spiritually, especially when it came to crossing the Jordan. Just because they had established their camp before the Jordan did not mean that the men who were able to fight and, and, and the money that was there to support them would not be given when they crossed the Jordan. They were to participate in the crossing of the River Jordan. That was the agreement. Now that Moses is gone and Joshua is a leader, he once again wants to remind them of their ob- obligations. But he's also aware that just because they agreed with something that Moses said, doesn't necessarily mean that they will agree the same with him. And backing out of their obligations would greatly discourage the rest of the people. Right, they're about to cross the Jordan, face more enemies and stronger enemies than they have ever known. And if two and a half tribes decided we are not going to help you out, that would be not only a great discouragement, but it would undermine the fabric, the unity of the people of God. So Joshua focused on that because the unity of God's people is critical to the success of its leadership. Throughout the Bible, we see that unity is often a marker that God's people are marching towards the goal that God has laid out for them. And that their leadership is in tune with God's will and with the people. In contrast, division among God's people is a sign that God's will is not being lived out in the community and that failure in the leadership is imminent. Either disunity, if you read in the history of Israel, either disunity means that the king is about to fall Or it means that the king is doing a bad job. So there is this critical juncture once again in Israel's history. What will the tribes say? And verse 16, we see the response of the whole of Israel, not just the two and a half tribes, but the whole of Israel. They have a unified response. In verse 16 it says, And they answered Joshua, All that you commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. First off, in a unified voice, they proclaim, what are they proclaiming? That we will be united. Wherever you send us, we will go. Not just, uh, you know, not just everyone except the two and a half tribes. We together will fight for you. And then they explicitly acknowledge that they will obey that what Joshua will ask them to do. Verse 17, the reason for that is given. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you, Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. They recognize that God has raised Joshua up just as he raised up Moses. So their obedience is not contingent on the personality or the person but on the fact that God had appointed their leaders and their obedience to their leader is in keeping with their commitment to God himself. Verse 18, whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. First off, here in this verse, they understand the seriousness of division. So they take a stand against it, a very strong stand. And then they encourage him. Notice how they encourage him with the same words that God encouraged Joshua. The same words that the word of God encouraged Joshua. That same encouragement is also needed to come from God's people to their leaders, then there's a comprehensiveness in the encouragement that will uphold the leaders that God has placed over them in good times and bad. When the encouragement comes from God, from the presence of God, when the encouragement comes from the word of God, when the encouragement also comes from the people of God, there's a completeness that is needed to uphold their leaders. And that encouragement we see here comes from unity in the community. That encouragement is natural in a unified community. You know, unity doesn't mean that everything needs to be uniform or that people will always you know, want the same things or be on the same wavelength, right? There's two and a half tribes which, when told to, to cross Winston Churchill and go into Milton, decides to stay back in Brampton. So obviously there's a lot of things that they might not be able to do together going ahead. But just because they don't conform, just because not everything is the same doesn't mean that they did not have a unity in purpose. That when you cross over the Jordan, we will come with you because your mission is our mission. That kind of unity brings encouragement. That's why, again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, you know, we are called to encourage one another in the church, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You remember in that time, Sunday was not a holiday in the Roman Empire. So people in different parts of the city, different situations, some of them are slaves, some of them are traders, you know, like not all of them had the same access to resources, had the same opportunities to do everything that they wanted to do. But they said, don't neglect to meet each other on the day of the Lord, but come together so that you can encourage one another. That encouragement is needed. And leaders belong to the community. Joshua used to be just another man in the nation of Israel. So they need that encouragement too, as normal people. But they also need the encouragement of of submission and obedience. That's why in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be no advantage to you. They not only need that encouragement, they need that joyful obedience that in turn drives a joyful leadership. And verse 18 of chapter 13 of Hebrews says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. And beyond just encouragement, they need prayer. The leaders of God's people fight a spiritual battle and they need the spiritual fellowship of the congregation. Not just in encouraging words, but also in the fervent prayers of the community that lift them up to God and ask God to watch over their leaders just as those leaders watch over their souls. So the community of God's people is the environment. The unity of God's people is the environment in which Christian leadership or godly leadership can truly flourish. It needs to put its trust in the character of God. It needs to be rooted in the word of God, but it needs to be, um, it needs to be situated in the midst of God's people in a particular context where unity and encouragement and prayer is predominant. When you come to the end of Joshua in chapter 24, verse 29, it says, After these things, Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years of 110 years old. So it began with a funeral, it ends with a funeral. But here, how is Joshua described? It says, Joshua, the servant of the Lord, no longer just Moses' assistant. He's the servant of the Lord. It means he was successful in his leadership. How do we know he was successful? Chapter 24, verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. That is how we know he was successful. He was called a servant of the Lord because he brought them into the promised land and his people served the Lord during all of his days. Because His life followed the template that was set out. When he first assumed that responsibility, his life of leadership was a success. He had confidence in the character of God to lead and sustain his people, not in his own gifts or in his own abilities. And he always derived encouragement from knowing that God's presence was always with him. And then he was rooted in the word of God, the means by which he found success and prosperity in the mission that God gave to him which was to lead God's people across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And finally, the unity of God's people. It says Israel, all of Israel serves the Lord. The unity of God's people that encouraged him through their submission, their joyful submission to him. That is the template for leadership and communities of God's people that will ensure that regardless of challenges and circumstances, success and prosperity and flourishing in the path that God has set out for them will come about. May his name be glorified. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you Lord for your word, for blessing us and giving us the opportunity to reflect on the lives of your great servants. uh, As we read about Joshua who took on the mantle of Moses a lot, many From a human perspective, it seems impossible that he would have found success, but we realize a lot that he was the one who ultimately led uh, God's people into the promised land, that he was the one who fulfilled the promises that were first given to Moses. So we recognize a lot that it is not in humans to bring about the glory of God or to bring about uh, the success of God's people, but it is in you and that and that the leaders that you raise up are just instruments that you use to bring about that, that success a lot. But we also recognize that they have a responsibility uh, to, to do their work properly by being rooted in the wood and by obeying it completely. And also that we as a people, as a community, have a responsibility to uphold them, to encourage them, and to, and to pray and submit to them a lot. So we pray a lot that this template that you have given, which is repeated over and over, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, will be one that we can follow and that we can, we can continue on. So, though, Lord, that we will be successful and prosperous in the in the path that you have set out before us as individuals and as a community of your people in this land. We pray, lot for your. We thank you, Lord, for your continuing faithfulness to us, and we pray, Lord, for your strength and guidance as we go out into the world this week. We thank you in the name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.